everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Grand Town Media's Inside Milford, a podcast spotlighting the people who make our local government run. My name is Tim Finan, and I'll be your host for today's episode. My guest today is town moderator Peter Basilea. Pete, who is also our school district moderator, has held these positions for 12 years. Um, welcome, Pete. Thank you for coming in today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. What I wanted to do today, I was hoping to start off you know, talking about your position, what the town moderator is, that okay. sort of thing, You know, what, what your role is. But I kind of like, because we're having a lot of elections coming up, I kind of like the focus to be on elections. Uh, which really is the focus of the position anyway, but there's other other duties besides elections yeah. per se. So I wanted to talk about that, and then we'll get on into uh, into the different elections and hopefully educate some folks at home, myself included, on some of the nuances of these elections. If you didn't mind, I wanted to first start with some like personal stuff. Talk about your background. Like, okay. have you been in Milford? I know you've been here for a long time. Yes. How long have you been in Milford? Uh, uh, my wife Gail and our family moved here in '81. So um, I'll never be a native. Where, where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up on, on the south shore of Boston, a town called Hanover, about uh, halfway between Boston and Cape Cod. No, I know it well. Oh. And did you go to school down there? Did you go in the area? My wife and I both went to Hanover High School. Actually, we both went through the Hanover school system, and then uh, we went on to uh, Bates College, where we graduated from. Oh, up in Maine. Yep, yeah, exactly, exactly. I apply. I got waiting listed to Bates. Uh-huh. I got early acceptance. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that that sets things up perfectly here for us. <laughs> so, all right, great. So let's. So why don't we get into the uh, moderate? So just to someone who has no idea, what is the town moderator? What's your role? What What do you do? Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, there are actually um, in Milford we have two forms of government. So we have uh, the town government and we have the the school district's government. Both of those uh, governments have a moderator. Uh, the moder the moderator is responsible in the town side for two things. One is to moderate or, if you will, manage the annual meeting mm-hmm. uh, of the voters, where we debate and discuss the uh, articles that are on the warrant. Uh, same thing happens with the schools. But the difference between the school moderator and town moderator is that the town moderator is also the person who is uh, responsible for the polling place. On election day, um, it is the town moderator who has all the authority on site. And if anything goes wrong, it all focus, you know, it all comes up to the moderator. Um, and if people don't like what the moderator has done, their only alternative is to go to the, the attorney general and conquer it. That's interesting. That's a question I've always had because mm-hmm. typically, I think as long as I've lived in Milford, the town moderator held both. Well, the it was the same person was the town moderator and the school moderator. I don't Very know, frequently. Has, has it ever been different in th- your experience? I think it has in the mid-90s, but I can't recall exactly. So I always wondered, so if that were the case, then the town moderator would run the election. That's correct. But the school moderator would run the school's deliberate session, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. Got you it. have it right. Perfect. So um, so there's two roles. So the two separately elected positions. You, That's correct. You have to run. So if you if you want to be both, you have to run for this, both positions. That's correct, yes. Okay. Yeah. And you could potentially win one and lose the other. You could, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So how long is your term? It's a two-year term every uh, on the even years. And you're in your 12th, so you've... 13th, literally, but... You're in your 13th. So you're up for election this year, well, in, in 2020. In March 2020, I'm up for re-election, yes. So you... Okay, you just talked about the uh, you're responsible for mm-hmm. the 
physical election day. Can you talk about what are the other election officials? Because it's not just yourself that's the election official. There's, there's yes, um, absolutely. I'm happy to. They're uh, technically in the law, they're called election officers. Mm-hmm. And I just say that because some people may be looking for the term in the RSAs and, and uh, it's election officers. But everyone in, and the state acknowledges people use that terms interchangeably. Yeah, don't, aren't the, the, the pins the state give, don't they say election official? I think they do. They they may, and, but it's, you know, we buy them and we're not going to spend extra money to fix the language on them. Right. But, um, yeah, so uh, the other election officials are um, the, the clerk, and that would be the town clerk in, mm-hmm. in this uh, case, as well as the, uh, in the case of an election, the select board member, and, of course, so, the supervisors. So all five selectmen are election officer? Yes, all five select board members are. Okay, yes. okay. and you mentioned supervisors of the checklist. Yes, uh, someone like yourself. I was going to say, <laughs> it, uh, in full disclosure, I happen to be one of, one of the supervisors of the checklist. We have three here in Milford. Uh, myself, Darlene Buffard, and Polly Cody right. are the three. Jumping ahead perhaps a little bit, uh, the supervisors are integral integral to the election day because um, they validate any questions about a person who's already registered to vote, whether they are registered to vote, and also facilitate you know, registering new voters on that day and, and occasionally doing change of address and all that type of thing. So without the supervisors there, it would be virtually impossible for us to register voters on election day. So uh, yeah, the Supervisors are, are very active throughout the course of the day. The select board is there because I think I think it's historical mm-hmm. in the sense that way back in the day when we ran, you know, town meetings were small and they were held in a wooden, you know, building, perhaps a church building uh, in the town. Um, and something went wrong. We ran out of cordwood for the stove or whatever. The select board was responsible for making things right. Today, as a practical matter, you know, given the size of our polling place, we're one of the 25, top 25 polling places in the country in terms of registered voters who go to one place. Mm-hmm. Um, as a practical matter, if we had something come up, then I would turn to the you know, captain of, of the police who is present or the chief if he's present or directly reach out to the, the superintendent the principal and the fire department. I mean, so we wouldn't wait, you know, right. for a select board member to say, oh, okay, it's all right to do that. Mm-hmm. We would just go ahead and do it. Now, I do believe, I could be mistaken, but don't the selectmen have to sign each sealed ballot box at the end of the night? Yes. Um, uh, the, the, proce- the process is we... Um, and we can go through the whole thing if you like, but uh, prior we'll, to the, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, prior to the election, we we count all the ballots and so forth. But at on election day, what you're referring to is um, through the, the course of the day, and then certainly at the end of the night, we empty the ballot boxes of the cast ballots, and we store those in boxes that are sealed um, with a, a long tape and red uh, security tape for storage in the event that there's a need for a recount as an example. And we'll get to that too. <laughs> okay, so that's good. So you talked about the, uh, well, yourself, the moderator, the supervisors, and the mm-hmm. selectmen. What, what is the town clerk's review? Where, where, where does the responsibility division between yourself and the town clerk when it comes to elections? Well, I, I, I see it not so much as a division as, as, as in three and, and four with the select board uh, 
groups working together. I mean, if we if any one of us isn't carrying our, our weight, then it, if things start to, you know, wheels start to go off the wagon. Uh, so the, the town clerk uh, plays an integral role throughout the day as well. Um, one of the key roles is certainly processing uh, the absentee ballots that arrive between the close of business at the town hall the day before and 5 o'clock on election night, when uh, which is the last point that absentee ballots can be delivered to the polling place. So one of the key roles that the clerk plays is, is supporting that. But there are many other duties. And a couple of them are mundane, but they help make the thing go. And that is like getting the arranging for breakfast uh, and coffee for the the workers and dinner for the workers, which is, by the way, pizza <laughs> historically. I mean, so it, it uh, the clerk's work uh, runs a gamut of several things. And this year in particular, um, Joan Dodge, who's our town clerk, um, is also managing a project where we're trying to get the state to allow us to use e-poll books for the check-in process. So um, her role is... Uh, very important in the process. Now, and I want to talk about the, the e-poll books in, in a bit. Mm-hmm. Now, this may just be because of the way we run them here in Millville, but I believe the town clerk typically does the actual tallying of the vote. Is it, or is that just a mechanical thing that she does? Because that typically... um, it's, it's varied a little bit in, in my tenure. When I first came on, Willie Ledoux, who's since passed, was I, I let him, you know, do the totaling. Um, okay. And he, at that point, he was a former town clerk, um, and uh, Peggy was was still town clerk um, and then you said you let him so that means so in in statute it's it's the town I'm, I'm responsible okay. for the total so I have okay. to I'm the one the moderator is the person who signs the the reforms that say this is the this is the count okay but um, in the in the case I had someone like Willie who's got years of experience and and you know knew all the processes as well. You know, over time, actually, Joan Dodge started helping out. Now my wife helps. Because at the end of the night, what we're looking for, don't forget for all the election, well, for the clerk, myself, the supervisors, we've been at this since five in the morning. And by the time we're close to having the counts ready, it's almost 10 o'clock at night. So it's been a long day already. So it's best to have some other, somebody else to help us and with a you know, fresh set of eyes, make sure that the math is right. And that's, that's what we're doing. So um, long answer to your question, but basically I'm responsible for the number at the end of the night. But what we do, the way we go about tallying the counts is by uh, having the clerk and, and at least one other person uh, working together to make sure the counts uh, double check against each other. Good. And I, I should note, too, that it's not only the tallying of the votes. There's a lot of work that goes on after the polls close because we need to have pretty much every count has to match the number yes. of people who took a ballot, mm-hmm. the number of people who checked in. And then there's uh, ballots that have been spoiled. We have to subtract those out. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's there's a, a lot going on at night. Yes, there is. It's, it's an incredible amount of work in a very short period of time. But um, you're right, because... The way one of the one of the keys to knowing that the the counts are correct is, as you say, we know how many people uh, checked in, we know how many people uh, registered to vote that day, and then we have uh, the machine total of how many people cast, how many ballots were actually cast, and um, that includes not only the machine read but also ones that have to be hand read, and so those numbers in an ideal world are identical at, on election night. And they have to be reasonably close. Right. I mean, and when I say reasonably close, we're talking, you know, 10 or so variants because the way we do check-in today is a very manual process. And it's uh, inherently, despite the best effort of all our election workers who are at the ch- at the table uh, checking voters in, they do occasionally make mistakes. Mm-hmm. 
and I will add too because I'm intimately involved with this. People, you know, once the election's over, you know, people go home and and, and it's over. But uh, the election workers continue to work for days and days, weeks sometimes afterwards, getting everything lined up. So you, you mentioned that we might be off by ten votes or so, but we have to find those ten votes. We have to figure out why we were off by ten votes. So a lot of times that involves going back through the physical checklist and and recounting every check and all those things so there's a lot of work that goes on after that exactly which you're well well aware of okay so i'm trying to slowly zoom in on the specifics of some of these elections but i wanted to start with just kind of a high level overview of the elections that are coming up Uh, we're just coming off a very slow year in 2019 we had a single election but next year we have Probably four, right? Or definitely four. Is it def- definitely definitely four? See, I yeah. wasn't sure about the state primary whether whether we know that's going to take place. Well, in at, theory, it might not, right? Well, I, okay. Um, no, I don't think in this case. I don't think that uh, in theory the Republican Party may, uh, as it has in other states, may choose not to. But I don't believe in New Hampshire that'll happen. Uh, there will be a primary. I think the only question, Tim, is when is the primary? We still don't have a date for the presidential primary. for the presidential primary. Right. So the presidential primary, uh, in theory. Um, because of the way our state laws are written, could occur in December. Right. Uh, but at this point, it's highly unlikely that will right. happen. So it'll be a January or February uh, presidential primary. So let's, yeah, I want to get to that. But let's, so what are the four elections that are coming up next year? Just briefly, I don't want to get in, but what they are and why we do them. Well, okay, so let's let's separate them um, by state and national versus local. So there are there are three state or national elections. There's the prim- presidential primary in January, February. Um, then in September, we will have a statewide primary for all the state na- uh, offices. So that would be uh, Senate, Representative, Governor. Um, because we're on two-year governor cycle, mm-hmm. um, and several other statewide and uh, county offices. And our state representatives to the federal government as well. Oh, excuse me. That's what I was thinking of, but you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, so it's, House, it's our representatives to the, the legislature in Concord, and it's our representatives to the legislature in Washington. Right, yeah. exactly. And that and happens in September. So that So, okay. So the first <laughs> one is the presidential primary, which will be in— as you said, we don't know for sure. I've seen the date February 11th kicked around. I don't know if that's just a if everything works out perfectly. Why don't you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. why we don't know yet? Because the law, what, what does the law say about when the New Hampshire primary must be? That we will be the first. That's in, essentially in the country. In the country, and I, I believe it's seven <laughs> days. I think we, I, I think it has to be seven days prior to any other primary. Right. Some, yeah, I believe that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. So what that means is that in theory, and although it hasn't had had to go into December, certainly if another state tries to jump ahead of us in the calendar, then we're obligated to leapfrog them and go earlier still. So, and that's why it has not yet been been set. Although interestingly, the dates in order to change of party has been set, which we'll get to that in a little bit. That's that's later this month. Yep. Okay, so that's the presidential primary, which will be in January, February. Then we have the... Uh, and, and for those who may not know, hopefully everyone does know, what's the reason? Why do, why do we have a presidential primary? 
Well, um, primary elections are, are interesting because the town and state are paying to uh, hold an election for the benefit of two private organizations, the Democratic Party and the, and the Republican Party in this state, and for a short period of time also the Libertarian Party when they were recognized by the state. And so we're holding a party, uh, excuse me, we're holding an election so that the parties can choose who will run on the election, on the ballot in November for um, the statewide or, or local or national position. So uh, they have a runoff. That's what the primary essentially is. It's a runoff election to determine who from each of the parties will run against the others on the other side, if you will. And if anyone's paying attention to the news, you know they'll probably be, I mean, we don't know for sure yet because filing period's not up, but there could be as many as 15 or 20 Democratic candidates Yes, which which makes for interesting mechanics because a lot of um, in '08, all right, it was the year that uh, ended up with McCain and and Obama running. There were contested elections uh, primaries on both sides. In all likelihood, um, you can make a reasonable estimate that the Republicans won't have a strongly contested primary in um, in. 2020. I could be wrong, but that's that's the way it seems to look. So if that's the case, then in all likelihood, many of the undeclared voters, people who are not affiliated with a party, will likely choose a Democratic ballot uh, in, in order to have a meeting, if you will, for lack of a better term, meaningful vote on election day. So unlike um, in 08 and probably unlike what will happen in four years when uh, there's no incumbent running for re-election, this election mid-cycle will probably skew heavy, more heavily towards Democratic votes by either Democrats that are already registered as such or undeclared people who choose that ballot. Just like four years ago, it was the flip of that when there was a contest on the Republican side. And we'll talk more about the mechanics of what you just talked about <clears throat> with the uh, um, choosing ballot in, in a bit. Sure. Okay, so that's the primary election. And the next election is the townwide election, which is in March. Yep. Again, very high level. What's the town? What are we doing in the town election? This is the one that makes all the difference, and nobody comes. It's 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 frustrating <laughs> as all get out. I mean, uh, in in the November general uh, general election in 2020, we'll probably get 75 percent of uh, over 11,000 people show up to vote. The, in March, we'll be lucky to get lucky to get 20 percent of those people to vote. And the irony is, from my perspective, is that when we vote for you know president, we vote for this, even though a lot of the statewide offices, you're you're really voting on uh, direction. You know, someone uh, that you think will go in the direction that you want them to. But at the time, uh, the local elections in March, you're deciding whether to buy a fire truck or a dump truck or hire a teacher or hire a firefighter. Those are not only really critical local services that the person benefits from, but it also directly impacts their wallet. And, and we've seen so many examples of, well, just this past election, I hope to talk about it in a little, little bit, mm-hmm. but we had a school board race that was determined by like 12 votes, something, three three votes. Yeah. And we've I remember back when we passed the fire station, no, I'm sorry, the police station, whenever that was, mm-hmm. you know, 15 years ago, that was, you know, less than 10 votes. And and when something, if something fails by, you got to remember, if someone fails by, let's say, eight votes, that's really four votes because if four people had decided to vote the other way, it, mm-hmm. it would flip flop. Exactly. So, exactly. so you get to the point where literally one person can have an, an impact on hundreds of dollars on your tax rate. Absolutely, absolutely. 
absolutely. But the, you know, I think it, the, the bigger point is, and that if anything comes from these uh, podcasts, uh, is that we get more people to show up for the deliberative sessions in February, both town and school. You know, the, the school budget's $42 million. That's huge. Right. Um, and so when voters go to the polls in March, they really are affecting the quality of the services they and their family members or their businesses uh, receive, uh, as well as the amount of taxes they're paying for that uh, service. Okay, so that's the town election. We are we are the third election next year is the state primary, which we already talked about. Mm-hmm. That's in September. Yep. It's just like the presidential primary, but it's the state. Uh, yeah, bigger, right. longer ballot. <laughs> exactly. And then finally, the fourth election is the federal election in November. Okay. Yep. And that, that in there, we elect the president the, mm-hmm. and all the federal officers. That's correct. And, and statewide officers, governor. Okay. Okay, you're right. You're right. All the everything, everything that was everything that was uh, resolved in the two primaries are voted on in that's in correct November. Yes. So we so we've got the four elections that are coming up next year. So it's going to be a busy year. Mm-hmm. So now I wanted to start getting into more details on how this stuff works. The first one, this is really my wheelhouse because I'm a supervisor with checklist, but but we we can talk about it because I like. I can I can interview you if you like. <laughs> well. I, I may get some of this wrong because that's one of the one of the problems when you have these cycles where one election and then then you have four elections. You kind of like get stale sometimes. Yeah. And as you know very well, the the state's constantly changing our laws on mm-hmm. uh, and, and they yeah. use the little nuances on what you know what qualifies for residency and yeah. what doesn't and things like that. So I wanted to start with registering to vote. We talked about it earlier. Kind of, that's mm-hmm. almost like the most basic or maybe the least common denominator in all these elections is you have to be registered to vote. Everybody has to be registered to vote. Unlike other states in New Hampshire, you have to explicitly register to vote. Some states allow you to, when you register your car, you mm-hmm. get you get registered. New Hampshire does, does not do that. And I say that because we always have people come up at the polls and they say... They're new to town. They've... They're new to town, but they registered their car and they just assume they can vote. And they can't in New Hampshire. They have to register. Fortunately, we allow registrations the day of election. So that was um, everybody must be registered to vote. Now, in order to register to vote, and and you can jump in if, if mm-hmm. I'm if I get some of this wrong. The requirements in New Hampshire: you have to be 18 years old. You have to be a resident of Milford if you're voting in Milford. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to be a resident in the town in which you vote, and you have to be a U.S. citizen. In order to prove that, so when you come to register, you're going to have to prove those three things. Technically, the, the three things that have to be proven according to statute are your identity and your age. And in order for that, so so this this kind of goes to what we're always asked what documentation is right. needed to register yep. to vote. So at a high level, those are the really the four things you have to prove. You have to prove you are who you say you are. You have to prove you're 18 years old. You have to prove you're domiciled in the state in Milford and that you're a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. So for documentation, we require for identity and age, a license, birth certificate, Passport. Passport. Actually, any any license, any a, a driver's license from any state is accepted. Student IDs for New Hampshire colleges and high schools are permitted. Okay. You, you, um, to register to vote. Well, I'm or talking to, about on election day. To register to vote. To register to vote. To register to vote. I believe you. You know better, yes. better than I. Have. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting the way it's why because I looked this up last night sure. to make sure the way the statute is actually written. It says any affiliated college or university within mm-hmm. the state of New Hampshire, any high school. And it lists separately Dartmouth College, yes. which I just thought that's kind of interesting. Well, does that mean they're not affiliated? Because <laughs> they would have fallen into any of the other categories. Mm-hmm. 
so we accept military IDs, uh, non-driver ID issued by it has to be issued by a, uh, a one of the state's DMVs, Departments of uh, Motor Vehicles. And finally, this is one of the places where there's some discretion. If you have another ID, whether it be maybe an employer or, mm-hmm. or a, a college ID from a college out of state, the supervisors and the election officials have discretion where they can accept something. Yeah. So if someone showed up with a Harvard University school ID, most likely would accept it. Right. And, and, the, and the point of the ID is that the person who is presenting themselves to you as a supervisor uh, is who they say they are. So that's why the photo ID from an, an acknowledged authority is your, your evidence that the person that you're looking at is the person pictured on the exactly. ID. Exactly. And we're also allowed to accept at our discretion uh, work IDs, for instance. And, and again, we're talking about registering to vote, not to vote itself. We'll not get to that. Day. We'll yeah. get to that. So if someone shows up with a, a Hitchner employee ID, we can accept that. And we probably would. Whereas if someone shows up with, you know, Acme Safe Company from Southern Alabama, we probably wouldn't because we don't know if that's legitimate. Exactly. So. Okay, so that's the identity to, to prove residency. We Again, the driver's license, if your driver's license has your Milford address, that's acceptable to register to vote. Again, the passport, a utility bill, anything with your address, basically anything that you can use, any documentation that shows you live within, um, within Milford, uh, we will accept. And there's discretion there as well. And finally, it's U.S. citizenship which would be a birth certificate or citizenship papers if you're naturalized, that sort of thing. Another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that a New Hampshire driver's license actually does not prove citizenship, U.S. citizenship, because mm-hmm. uh, you, you, can, you can actually get a, US, a driver's license, a New Hampshire driver's license if you're not a citizen. So we do require other documentation to prove you're a citizen. You can't just show up with a New Hampshire driver's license and, and expect that that will satisfy all three of those criteria, you know, identity, residency, and citizenship. I will add, though, that we have affidavits available for all of these things. So if somebody doesn't, cannot prove they're a U.S. citizen, they are allowed to sign an affidavit saying that they're a U.S. citizen, and they'll have to swear to it. Then we'll allow them to register to vote, and the, the Secretary of State will follow up on all that stuff. So I just wanted to get, get the register of vote out of the way, because that's kind of fundamental to all of this stuff. And the other thing is when you register to vote, you are given the option— you don't have to, but you're given the option to declare a party. So when someone registers, mm-hmm. we'll ask, are you a Republican, are you a Democrat, or do you not want to tell us, or do you not want to declare? And you can do that. Yes, indeed. And that becomes really important at the, at the primary elections. Absolutely. Right. It becomes very important, and, and, we're, and that's why I'm, we're going to get into the primary soon. Uh, where and when can you register? So you can register to vote. You can register to vote anytime that the town hall is open. You can register at the town clerk's office. You can register the supervisors of the checklist. We have occasional evening hours. Mm-hmm. We'll meet at town hall, depending upon you know the frequency of the elections. It might be once a month. It might be less frequently than that. Um, that you can come and register there. The library, which we're recording this from right now, mm-hmm. has started doing registration days, which is great. Yeah. Just a couple of weeks ago, we came in here at the supervisors, and we had set up a table in the lobby, and we registered voters. And finally, and, and probably most important, because not all states allow this, is we allow you to register the day of the election. Yes. So if you're not registered, you can come and uh, register to vote at the election. All right, so I just wanted to get that registration stuff out of the way. So let's let's delve into the primary, because that's, okay. the, that's yeah. the next one. So 
we kind of alluded to some of this stuff, but who gets the vote in the primary? Well, a registered voter does. And so it, in that respect, it's no different than any other election. Uh, a registered voter is entitled to vote in the, in the primaries. Um, the, the question that often comes up, though, is for what party? Because, you, because it, we're, we're hosting uh, for the benefit of the parties their primary. You have to make a decision as a voter which primary, oh, excuse me, which party do I want to cast my ballots for? And it has to be the entire slate of offices for all the positions on that on that party's ballot. In January, February, it'll obviously be only one, the president. But in September, there's multiple different uh, positions. So the voter has to make a decision. Am I going to ask for a ballot for the Republican Party or for the Democratic Party? Now, what you just said is true for undeclared voters. They get the choice. Now, if, if yeah. Correct. So, so if if I'm a registered Republican and I show up at, at the primary to vote, I have to vote Republican. You have absolutely no choice. Yes, right. you're absolutely right. The the voter um, who is already registered on on think of it this way, the voter who was in the in our rolls on the day before the election as a member of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party can only select, uh, can only take the ballot for that party. Um, that's the whole process that you were just describing and uh, actually has finishes weeks ahead of the uh, election. But on election day, a voter who is undeclared, that's the literal term in the law that everybody refers to as independent. All right, a person who thinks of themselves as an independent voter um, can, ha- can has to make a choice. They can either take the Democratic or the Republican ballot, but not both. Right. And so this is an important point because every primary we have a handful of people that come in and say, you know, they want to vote. They want a Democratic ballot, but mm-hmm. they're registered Republican. And we're saying, I'm sorry, you can't you can't take that ballot because you, you, you're a member of a party. Right. And, right. and, um, and we as supervisors, we try to ha- keep as especially at primaries as much documentation and historical data as is possible so that we can resolve these conflicts. Right. You know, we, we make it easy as easy as possible for a voter who is undeclared going into the polls, you know, an independent voter who chooses a party's ballot, for them to be able to revert their, their status back to undeclared before they even leave the building. Now, that can, there can be a line there, I'll admit, because we have to go through paper documents for as many voters are, uh, that are coming through the, the, the polling place. We have to enable them, and we do enable them, to um, make that change right then and there. Some people elect not, if you will, elect not to uh, you know, make that stop and make that effort. And if they decide not to, that's fine, but they just need to remember that sometime between then and the next primary election, if they wish to change their primary, excuse me, their party affiliation, then they've got to go to the town hall or to one of the meetings that the supervisors host in order to make that change. If they don't, then they're going to be on the rolls for the ballot, uh, the party that they just uh, voted for. So it becomes critically important. And I think that's the cause of a lot of confusion that, uh, that we – it's not a lot of voters, but we do have voters who will swear up and down that they're not registered in that party. And also I can say is that, sorry, but the records indicate you are. Now, perhaps you didn't make the change. Perhaps one of our people made a mistake. Regardless, I cannot by law make a change on, on election day because you're already a registered voter. Right, exactly. And that's why I said we keep we have a physical book that you have to sign to go back to undeclared. 
and we always keep that with us. Yep. So we go back and say, yes, you see, you did do this. It's, it's small comfort. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that just because you took, for example, a Democratic ballot and you really wanted the Republican ballot, you can still write in the, you know, the names of the candidates you want on the Democratic side. To be truthful, it won't be counted. But you can still it's it'll be it'll be registered as, as count, but it, it won't be added to the uh, the tally of the Republican Party. It'll, in this example, <clears throat> it'll only be on the Democratic side. So we don't add you know, those cross party, you know. But you still have the ability if you've already made the time and effort, and you really want to cast a vote for a candidate, you can still write that person in on the other party's ballot if if you'd like. <clears throat> and one, uh, it's kind of a nuanced point, but but this whole thing we just discussed. Mm-hmm. When, when an independent voter or an undeclared voter chooses a ballot, they are, in effect, joining that party. It might only be for 10 minutes, but they're joining. So if you if you do not go back to undeclared, you will be registered for that party, and you might start getting you, – you probably will start getting mails and emails, you know, about, Very about that party. So, so that's, that's an important point. Okay, so that's the primary. So we choose the ballot. So there's only um, – and they have to another, – another issue that we get sometimes is – some voters don't want to tell you. So if you register, okay, this is this is an important point. If you're registering to vote at a primary at the uh, polling, you have to, you know, you have to pick a party. It's right. kind of implicit, just like the undeclared voter has to pick a ballot. If you're registering to vote, you have to pick a party, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of interesting because we always get one or two that say, "I don't want to tell you. It's not your business what party I belong to." It's like, well, I'm sorry, you're at the primary. Right. You know, yeah. why are you here if you don't want to tell us? Because <laughs> you have yes. to. Yes, yeah. And, and the supervisors and all the election officers do everything we can to maintain confidentiality. There's even a process for people who, you know, are in certain circumstances where they, they're assured anonymity. Uh, think people who are uh, have restraining orders or other things against other individuals and uh, don't want their address disclosed. So we do, as you know, the state enables uh, – through the legislature and, and through all the workings of it, there are there are processes to assure some anonymity. But the reality is, uh, virtually every person who registered to vote that is a public record. What party you selected in an election, a primary election, will be a public record. But never is the actual votes cast um, associated with any individual voter. Yeah, that, that that's very important. So just to wrap up this this business about parties and and uh, registration, I want to point out it's very important if you are currently registered to vote and you've declared a party, you've declared Democratic, you've declared Republican, and you want to switch parties. If you're a Democrat and you want to become a Republican or vice versa, you have to do that by October 25th, which is like two weeks from now. You have like mm-hmm. two weeks to. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to get this podcast yes. done to get yeah. to make sure that that date get out gets out there. I'm not 100% sure why that's there. I, I imagine it's so that the parties can get lists, you know, valid lists, you know, in preparation for the primaries. But yeah. but that's the bottom line is that you ha- if you do not switch your party by October 21st, I'm sorry, October 25th, then you have to vote in, in your party in the primary. That's, that's correct. Absolutely correct. I apologize, but I need to interrupt and add a small post-production comment at this point. The upcoming deadline of October 25th is not only to switch from Democrat to Republican or from Republican to Democrat, it is also the deadline to switch from Democrat or Republican to undeclared. In other words, if you want to change your party 
whether that be between the major parties or to or from undeclared, you must do that by October 25th in order for that party declaration to be in place for the upcoming presidential primary. If you want your party declaration to remain exactly as it is now, if you want to remain Democrat, if you want to remain Republican, or if you want to remain undeclared, you do not have to do anything. Now we'll return to our discussion with Pete. Okay, so let's move on to the town election. So that's the next one in March. Mm -hmm. uh, we already talked a little bit about what that is, town elections for town items, you know, the, the budget, uh, local elected mm -hmm. officials, things of like that. As you know, the town elections in New Hampshire are in, part, in, in two parts. You want to talk a little bit about what the two parts are and, and SB2 and why we do all this stuff? Oh, okay. Um, in terms of, um, yeah, the town meeting in, in Milford is now um, – governed by um, what is referred to as SB2, you know, the, uh, which is the Senate Bill 2 for which um, everybody just refers to this, uh, this process. And basically what we do is we have a meeting, a deliberative session where the, in the case of the select board, they've created a warrant um, and uh, the voters uh, discuss that warrant. Uh, and um, then determine what they want to actually put on the ballot for uh, the entire community of voters to vote on. Same ha thing happens with the school district. So you're talking about the deliberative session At now, the deliberative which session, is yeah. some number of weeks prior to the election. Yes. it's um, By law, It's um, I think it's like it's early February, and I'd have to look it up. But there's uh, early February is uh, this, within the second week, by the end of the second week of February, I believe it is. And then, of course, the March elections are dictated by law also. That's the second Tuesday of March. So it's about a month ahead of time. So so we, we go to the deliberative session to deliberate. That's why it's called mm -hmm. that, to deliberate about the, about the items we'll be voting on in March. Yes. Okay. The deliberative session is is um, an incredibly important part of the process, and I think the um, what happened with Mac Base uh, topic in this past January, uh, just past Fe February, is illustrative of that point. Um, you got to remember, uh, a warrant is a, a warning to the voters uh, of the town that the select board is holding, in this case, the select board is holding a meeting to discuss important matters that affect everybody in town. Uh, it affects them with their policy, their, their dollars, their you know plans and policies, and so forth. The warrant also is created by not only uh, articles that are submitted by the select board, but also by residents. You can have a petition article on, on the warrant as well. So we go to the meeting, and the people who are actually present uh, can determine whether they like that warrant, the warrant articles as is, in which case uh, they're just written as written, they go onto the ballot, or they may choose to modify or amend those uh, warrant articles, and uh, the articles as amended by the people who are present is what actually appears on the ballot. And then that ballot <clears throat> is what all of the registered voters in town are able to vote on. So if you skip the deliberative session and there's a matter of uh, great importance to you and that, that matter gets changed, it may not reflect what you would have liked to have seen happen. And that's what happened with the, the Milford Area Communications Center in, in January. Mm -hmm. uh, within the law, the, the people present chose to significantly change uh, the uh, wording of that uh, warrant article. Right. So so for the benefit of the listeners, uh, I don't remember the numbers, but that warrant article that you were just talking about, mm -hmm. it, it it started out as 
correct me if I'm wrong, it was a Warren article for multiple millions <laughs> to create a standalone Milford-only dispatch center. Was to, that was that to what study? To study at the end result. So the was, end result. I'm saying the original warrant. Oh, the came, original. The yes. original warrant was the selectmen wanted two million dollars or, or some number to move dispatch from town hall, and I think they were proposing an addition on the police station to move mm-hmm. move everybody over there. So then we get into into deliberative session and begin deliberating, and there was a lot of opposition. There was a lot of discussion. We discussed that for almost four hours, I think, if I, I remember think you're right. right. Yeah. And as Pete just alluded to. That got changed significantly. The wording was changed to instead of moving, instead of creating a new dispatch center, to studying a dispatch center. And it was lowered from whatever the multiple millions down to, I think, $80,000. Yes. And yeah. that and that ultimately yeah. passed. And it actually only passed after it, it failed. And then somebody added the word possible, I think. Yes. To yes. possibly study or to to study possibly moving something like that, very very nuanced, and that finally passed. So it's so it's very interesting. And 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 the thing to keep in mind about that those meetings is that although I'm moderating, I'm not directing. Mm-hmm. So the moderator's role is to manage the meeting and to make sure it goes smoothly and to the to the extent that I can make sure everything is done in a legal manner. Um, you know, Milford has made a great practice of having our town or school board attorney present as well. So that helps them. Mm-hmm. Cases and certainly in the beginning, you know, 12 years ago, I relied on uh, Mr. Drescher quite a bit. And now, you know, my experience is such that I'm, I, I can generally get it right um, and occasionally turn the Drescher, or Mr., Mr. Drescher, in, you know, partly to reaffirm what, you know, what I'm thinking. Uh, but I'm not there as a moderator to direct things. So to your point, the body wanted to add a word. Mm-hmm. And so it's not for me to say, no, you can't do that. Um, as long as it's legal, and and if it's not, if I think it won't be le- legal, I'll let the body know that. But the body can still make, if you will, uh, illegal uh, uh, warrant articles. They'll be tossed out later on, mm-hmm. either by a court or by the Department of Revenue Administration. So you don't just do it because you want to do it. You have to have a good, really good reason to try and do something different like that. But my point is that as a moderator, my goal is to allow the voters to have their say. And you do a great job at it. I'll add that too. Um, the, the other, um, the other important thing about the deliberative session that people need to realize, for better or for worse, they're not well attended. You know, maybe oh. eighty to hundred people would be a good day, and a lot of those are town employees usually. Exactly. A, f- a few years back, I, I we had uh, a school board budget that was still only a little over thirty million dollars. Believe it or not, it's up to forty-two now. But in my tenure, it was in around thirty million dollars, and um, we had about thirty voters show up. Yeah. And I referred to them as my million-dollar voters <laughs> because, well, in theory, they each had a, a million-dollar vote on a thirty-million-dollar budget. Exactly. And yeah. and the 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 key to that too is um, that means I mean there's two sides. That the other side is that each individual vote is is very significant so if you don't like if if the dpw wants to buy a new sidewalk plow and you think it's a terrible idea if you can pull together 10 or 15 friends you can probably defeat that snow that snow plow yes and um well and the other thing is the deliberative session also harkens back to the traditional town meeting um i was on the uh, school budget the committee at the time, and then also the school board, and um, and I went to all the town meetings and so forth. And anyone who was was uh, went to earlier town meetings realizes that, you know, there were some really articulate, bright, inspired people in town, and they can get up on the floor of a meeting, 
and change people's minds. And one of the th- nice things about the, the traditional town meeting format, although they went really long and oftentimes multiple nights as by the end uh, in Milford, you know, the, you know, the idea that a person who has something to say can get up, make that statement, and change people's minds is critical. And so the deliberative session is an attempt to retain that part of town meeting. So to your point, it's not uh, it's not just that you're opposed to the, the 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 truck, perhaps, but it's also that you can make a case for your mm-hmm. your opinion, and you can change people's minds. And when you do that, perhaps the Warren article changes. Exactly. And there was a case maybe ten years ago in that neighborhood. Um, I remember it was fireworks. Fireworks used to be very controversial. They're not so much anymore. But I remember there was one year the the selectmen were against it. The budget committee was against it. And one woman stood up at the delivery session and gave this impassioned, you know, Norman Rockwell small town. This is what makes a town a town, you know. And it passed, you know, because uh, she was able to make a good case. Sure. Exactly, and, exactly. And that's good. Okay, so that's the deliberative session. Once once the de- deliberative session is done, the, essentially what goes on the ballot is, is done. It's tidied mm-hmm. up. And then we go to the election. So can you describe it? So let's let's go into some details about the actual physical election. What goes on at the election? I'm talking about the process. You check in your IDs, all mm-hmm. that stuff. So what, what if no one's, someone's never voted before and they're going to go vote for the first time, what do they expect to happen? Okay. So um, just a little bit of everything that goes around it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the ballots are printed ahead of time. They're received at town hall. And uh, a group of people actually verify the count of the number of, vo- of ballots that have been received. We, we do that. We reseal the boxes. We store the ballots in town hall until the day before the um, election. The ballots then go to the middle school where we hold the election, and they're stored in a locked room at the middle school until the day of the election. On, on election day, uh, we have uh, the first voter in line actually verifies that the ballot machines are empty. There's no, no, no paper inside, no ballots inside, and they, they all have a zero count. So that's the first thing that happens in the morning. That, from that point on, when a voter approaches the, the polling place, they come in, and if they need to register the vote, they go see the supervisors of the checklist. If they're already registered, they just proceed to a line for um, the way we currently do it, you know, it's alphabet- sorted alphabetically, and they present their ID to the person who's doing the check-in, state their name. The uh, person doing the check-in looks at the ID, looks at the person, validates the address and the name, and then gives that voter a slip of paper that entitles them for a ballot. And they take that slip of paper and they, the voter then exchanges it for the ballot or multiple pages of ballots, uh, as, as, as often happens at the town elections and school elections, and then goes to a voting booth. Uh, we have uh, booths at which the voters can stand. We have booths at which the voters can sit. Uh, we even have a uh, handicap-accessible tent for a person that's uh, in a wheelchair, perhaps. And there the voter marks the ballot. Ideally, by filling in the oval uh, next to the person or the uh, the warrant article they're voting on, and then once that is complete, 
they bring the ballots over to the ballot machines. Uh, uh, Town Clerk Joan Dodgy has arranged for a fourth machine now, so we have even more more firepower, if you will, for the big elections coming up in 2020. Um, and the voter then feeds each individual page one at a time in, into the machine. The machine um, uh, collects all of those uh, ballots, uh, and periodically during the day we empty the ballot machine because otherwise they get too filled. And uh, at the end of the night, we total up all the counts off the machines plus any other handwritten uh, write-in votes as well. And in the meantime, the voter has gone on their way and back home. So what what happens when they're checking in? What if they don't have an ID or they don't want to show you the ID? Well, um, then uh, there is a process. Uh, you can sign an affidavit attesting to who you are. And it's, it's, a, it's a legal document uh, and ends up going to the Secretary of State uh, and the Attorney General's office will investigate to validate that the person who signed the affidavit saying who they are is who they, they are. There's another uh, way, and this is kind of funny, there's another way is to be known to the town clerk or the moderator or the supervisor. And that, I say it's a funny thing because the, no, no kidding, the first year of the, of the voter ID law, my very first person that I had to verify, validate as because I knew the individual was then Senate President Peter Bragdon. Ah. <laughs> he had left his ID in the car. Um, he didn't want to go back outside. He had to get up to Concord, whatever, whatever, I don't know. But uh, yeah, he actually um, was the first person I had to say, well, I recognize this gentleman. He doesn't have his ID, but it's all right for him to vote because I know him personally. You had talked about the checklist. This is, this is a legitimate question for me because I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the status is. In the last March election, we did a pilot for the electronic checkings for the e-books, essentially laptops. Instead of checking off for the voters, instead of checking your name off of a list, they looked it up on a computer and it was much quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we going to be able to do that in, in February? We're closing January? in on it. The last I when I last spoke with uh, Joan Dodge about it, uh, we still don't have the okay. It's it's a very complicated process, and and as a, just to be very 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 clear, uh, we're not talking about uh, electronic voting, we're only talking about electronic check-in. So if the voter will still have a paper ballot. There will still be a paper trail. And if we need to, like we did in March, we can do a recount from paper ballots. But um, the e-poll book project is proceeding ahead. But there are, you know, we all, the state wants to make very sure that all the elements of the machine, the software and such are secure and accurate. Because one, obviously, we want to maintain the integrity of the elections. In New Hampshire, it takes great pride in the integrity of our elections, and you don't hear about the problems that you hear about other parts of the country, other states uh, in New Hampshire. But the other thing is that any once once we are approved for use as um, of the to- poll books in Milford, any other community with a polling place smaller than ours can automatically be is automatically qualified to use those poll books. And that's the vast majority. There's only like five or seven towns that are bigger than us with a single polling place. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's really important that the state get this vendor approved uh, and because the impact on the rest of the state that choose that, that vendor. Now, that, the process, you alluded to it. If, if you've been to an election, you know that the traditional way is to go through a big, fat book and people look for a Smith, 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 Smith. And, and you know, despite the best efforts of our election workers, and I have to sing praise for these people, they, they love their job. They love coming in. They do their best to get it right. Occasionally, they make a mistake. But that process is, as you point out, very time intensive. And it's, it can be error prone. And that, you alluded to it earlier and the things that have to be done after the election to double check. But with the e-poll book, 
it you know we you start typing in the word s m i t and the list just gets shorter and shorter on a tablet and uh, the five the polling books are actually connected to each other by a wire not by a wireless so they're physically connected by wire and they're ex, you know separated from the external world so that enables the machines to know almost instantaneously that a voter named Smith has checked in on a different machine and therefore cannot check in on the other machines right so so implicit in what you just said is you no longer have alphabetical lines you can get into any line yes we'll we'll have a you know a TSA bank kind of line a teller line where you snake back and forth because it's the first machine available can take it but to be clear TSA will not be there that's correct (laughs) (laughs) and nobody's gonna be handing out money either Oh, that's that's good. Okay, good. And again, just to be clear, we may or may not be doing that in March. In, I'm sorry, in February or, or January. Our, our goal is to have it in February. Okay. So don't, part of the issue is, of course, that's that's the biggest single election day in, in nationwide where New Hampshire has incredible influence, rightly or wrongly, disproportionately, whatever you think about that, we have incredible uh, you know, influence. And so the state absolutely wants to make sure that these books are, are right. And don't forget, though, if for some reason during the day there's an issue with the machines, we'll still have a paper backup. We're going to actually be duplicating what you see, the voter experiences behind the scenes in the room, when we'll be actually checking off the paper books as well. All right, it's getting late here, so I'm going to whip off some quick topics. Snow days. <laughs> Snow days. Talk about what happened, and, and I believe I know where it currently stands, but yes. talk about what happened. Was it last year or two years ago? It was uh, when we postponed two, two years ago, I, you know, maybe three now. But um, we had a, a major snowstorm, and um, using the authority granted to me by the legislature in RSA 40, I postponed the uh, elections. Now, which that wasn't said, a popular decision with some people in Concord. Well, yeah, no, there were some people in Concord who were definitely disturbed by that. Uh, but I wasn't the only one, and of course, I wasn't. I didn't do it on my own. I did it only on cons- consultation with the DPW, the police, and fire. Uh, you know, other uh, the select board certainly. So it wasn't. I, you know, although it was my decision to make, I didn't make it without getting input from a wide variety of people, and that was all in public. Right, but there was controversy. Yeah. With the Secretary of State, and I think even the Governor, claimed that. Moderators could not do that. Yes. Uh, the attorney general in office at that time said we did. The attorney general who came into office after that said we didn't. But regardless, just yesterday, um, I received um, from the, the state the, the summary of the election law changes. And um, one of the first, well, the first one on this list, but certainly one of the most important ones is it very clearly states that the moderator with certain uh, constraints. When the National Weather Service issues a weather warning, and it looks like it will negatively impact the ability of voters to safely get to the polls. And don't forget, it's not just voters going to and from the polls, but it's also all of the snowplow drivers. It's all of the other uh, maintenance people. It's the it's the fire and, and police officers who are out there. So it's not just making sure that the voters can get to the polls, but there's a whole lot of other people that they need to do work in a safe environment, as safe as we can make it in a major storm. So they've they added they made that very clear. They also made it very clear that it's only for town meeting. So I can't do it on a statewide election. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Oh, well. But which is important because. I think of 9-11. 9-11 was the second Tuesday. It would in an even year, or every four, every in an even year, it would have been a no. primary day. That's true. 
So um, you think about it, the, the law has now been clarified so that if uh, there's other you know, places, you know, uh, if there are other reasons, legitimate reasons to, to ch- postpone, the building is unsafe for some reason, whatever, whatever, is specified in the law. Um, the moderator can, on town meetings only, make that change, town elections only. All right. One other uh, topic, one other uh, responsibility you have that I want to quickly let you comment on is the budget advisory committees. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about what the, what those committees are and and what your role is in them? Yeah, the the budget advisory committees, and we have one for the town and one for the school district, are a group of individuals um, appointed by the moderator to uh, evaluate the budget proposals by either the select board or the school board. And so... Um, there are a group of people that, you know, some of them in my case now have several years you know, and maybe even a decade or more of experience on the on the budget advisory committee. And they assess the current budget performance, if you will, and look to see why are things like, you know, legal fees so much higher than what was, what was uh, proposed. But then they also look at the proposed budget for the next year and make recommendations to the voters. Those recommendations are in line with what they think the vote, the townspeople can afford to pay. So it's 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 their their opinion. Um, so then during the deliberative session, the uh, budget advisory committee responds to the proposals made by the respective boards and uh, informs the voters as to why they think the same thing as the board does, or maybe think differently. And then the voters at the deliberative session make a change. The other influence is that the BAC, as we call it, the Budget Advisory Committee, totals are uh, on the ballot. So the voter sees not only how the school board or the select board voted um, on the ballot, but they also, just the numerical total, but they also get the budget advisories. Um, So, um, yeah, it's an important role for the moderator in this town uh, because I strive, and my predecessors did too, and uh, to select budget committees that are, are balanced. We, you know, my first uh, foray on into town politics in Milford was uh, as a budget committee member appointed by Bob Philbrook. Mm-hmm. And I, I hold Bob in the highest regard to this day. I try to model the way I manage a meeting on the way Bob managed the, his meetings. Uh, but he and I would not have seen eye to eye on political matters. Uh, but that's not the important point. The important point is to have a, a group of people in the BAC who can assess the proposal and provide an informed um, advice for the voters. Yeah, and I'd add that at least here in Milford, it's uh, the voters give serious consideration to the budget advisory committee. Oh, absolutely. It's rarely, I mean, rarely is not the right word, but uh, at the budget advisory committee recommends that the voters not support some something. It's pretty likely it'll, they'll not support it. There are people who look at the broad, the entire picture, and there are people who look at the cost only. Um, and so they, a lot of people think that, you know, if the budget committee says no, then there's a good cost reason for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody makes a decision on how they vote on any Warren article or for any candidate, you know, based on, you know, a variety of factors. And uh, certainly there are people that do that. So is there anything that you think we missed that you would like to talk about? Yeah, just one thing, and, and that is <laughs> elections are incredibly complex and uh, we require great precision and we also require a whole lot of people, people like yourself as an elected official. But I run three shifts of, of workers. And in some cases, that could be as many as 12 people checking in voters times three. And with the poll books, we're going to actually have people behind the scenes. So I won't have as many check-in places, but I'll have voters, you know, people writing. The volunteer support that we get 
is just incredible. Um, and my hat's off to all of the people who, for all these years, uh, many come back every year for every election. Others do it as often as they can. It's it's that's what Milford's all about. It's it's not just that we have elected officials with some roles and responsibilities, but we have a whole lot of volunteers, and the election workers at the polls are, are just wonderful. And they take great pride in their work. And I think evidence of that is in the recount we had in March. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, we had to count more than 800 ballots with write-ins, names written in on them, at beginning after 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. So around 8.30 or so, we could finally begin the counting. And it didn't end until almost almost 10 o'clock. And yet the accuracy of that count machine and and you know writing uh, counts was within three I mean that's just phenomenal I take great pride actually in how that recount went and how close the night of the election totals were to the actual recounted totals yeah. and it has to do with the the volunteers be they elected officials or other election workers because they're the ones that make it happen Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again for joining us, and I want to thank Peter for stopping by. I also want to thank Chris Gentry, our Granitetown Media Media Manager. Chris has been our director and audio engineer for this episode. Our theme music today was written and performed by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or most of the major podcasting platforms. As always, we welcome any and all feedback or suggestions that you may have for future episodes. We invite you to go to Granite Town Media's Facebook page or leave a comment on our podcast page at soundcloud.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for another episode of Inside Milford.